Tonight we are in uh, topics in Proverbs, skills in godly marriage, part one. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we come uh, this morning, this evening uh, with thanksgiving um, because you have given us marriage um, in, in our sinful habits and our twisted thinking. Uh, we've been able to ruin that too, but uh, in your design, it was good. And so with that in mind, as we look at this, we ask that you'd open our hearts and our minds and give us grace to not only see the good, but to learn how to live in such a way that we can experience that good. Uh, thank you for the wives that you've given to us men. Thank you for the husbands that you've given to the women. And uh, give us grace to learn how to live that in such a way that the world looks in from the outside and says, I'd like to have that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so if you're going to study marriage, where do you need to go? Justice of the peace, right? Uh, I am so against the justice of the peace, not the person personally, but the idea that the government has gotten themselves in this whole subject. Now, they did it like any law, laws are created because people will not self-govern, okay? Uh, why do we need 45 miles an hour out here? Because someone will do 85 and not think about other people. So when it comes to uh, marriage, the reason why the state got involved is when a marriage is dissolved, who gets the kids? Well, since they had to come in and deal with that, they figure, okay, we're going to start selling the licenses. We'll even do them. They can still get them done at the church, but we're giving the church permission to do it. Well, in reality, when you come down to the brass tacks of marriage and you look at the Word of God, this is an institution that God created, and it is, it is by nature very, very simple. How many of you have heard of people spending thousands of dollars on a wedding. Now, I, I recognize if you want to have a party with all your friends and you got to rent a venue and, and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not talking about a family get-together. I'm talking thousands of dollars. In fact, among many young ladies today, that's the expected. If it doesn't cost $10,000, you have not done me justice. Kind of like, wait, they... This girl does not understand the simplicity of marriage, which we'll take a look at here tonight. So, the foundations of marriage and family. Number one, marriage is framed in the biblical context. God shows man his need, and then God's provision in Genesis chapter 2. Now, if you want to open to Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to be reading more than just Genesis 2. But uh, Genesis 2, we're going to come back to over and over and over again. So in Genesis 2, verses 19 through 25, New King James, Out of the ground the Lord formed every uh, beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to the ever beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And the women go, 
Yeah, that's nothing unusual. And he took one of his ribs and closed up his flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, here's your, here's your basic marriage. Now, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, a father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. Now, I don't know about you, but what kind of wedding ceremony was that? There was a declaration that she is mine and I am hers in front of God. And all the witnesses. <laughs> well, yeah, God, but you know, maybe the animals could be included in that. Uh, but that was it. That's a wedding. But notice, because it's before God... We're not talking about a girlfriend this week and next week a different girlfriend. We're talking about, yeah, it's done, okay? So it shows man's need. God uh, not only creates Adam and all of the animals, but he gives Adam an opportunity to name all the animals, and he brings them before Adam, male and female, male and female, male and female. And Adam's looking around and saying, where's my female? Okay, that's the idea there. But he also shows him his provision, so God puts him to sleep, and uh, in the Hebrew, the word for rib there would include some flesh, because he says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So the flesh is included there also. And uh, he makes woman, he brings woman to the man. And uh, there's the declaration. Uh, Adam says, woe man. Get it? Okay, moving right along. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus' uh, Jesus's response to the question about divorce in Matthew 19, 3 through 6. The Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to him, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So again, we're dealing with marriage. We will talk a little bit about divorce, but we're not looking for ways that we can get out of it. We're trying to have skills in a godly marriage. So therefore, we're going to get into it a little bit deeper is what it comes down to. So number two, man's need. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, verses 15 to 18, which we already read. In verses 7 to 9, the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God uh, made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in verses 15 to 18, then the Lord God took the man out of, uh, and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God uh, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, 
you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Okay? So when we look at uh, letter A, creation events, first of all, are historical. Since we're dealing with topics in Proverbs, we need to understand that Proverbs is poetry. So when you look at the, uh, the two, there's going to be a little bit different way that you're going to approach how you understand them. But we do need to understand that uh, creation is historical. Notice number one, Genesis 1 is basically a chronological overview. If you haven't noticed it in the past, the next time you're reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in fact, Deuteronomy is the perfect example because Moses will tell you, here's the overview, and then he'll go back and start giving you the details. Now, he doesn't give you the details to everything. He gives you the details that you need to know. Okay, so when we get into chapter 2, notice what it says. It is more of a close-up shot of some details of the creation of man. I don't know how many scientists or people who think they're scientists get online and explain why chapter 2 and chapter 1 are contradictory to one another. And it's kind of like, well, if chapter 1 were at the seventh seventh day, and then chapter 2, he starts all over. No, he really doesn't start all over. If you read carefully chapter 2, the the details kind of get started about day 3. Okay? Now, the reason why day 3 is in there is because you've got the animals and the plants and and stuff like that. But then he kind of skips over a few things and moves to day six. So he wants you to have some details, not all the details uh, for the whole story. Letter B. Moses shows that man is provided for in almost every area. First of all, man is made in the image of God. Now, with that in uh, context, you understand that he is going to have some kind of a relationship with his creator. Okay? Uh, Number two, he had the basic spiritual and intellectual capacity needed. So for him to have a relationship with God, he had to have that spiritual capacity. So not only is he a body, but now he has a living soul, and there's a part of him that is ultimately going to die, and yet he's still going to be alive. So there's that spirit that allows him to relate to the spirit, and he has the body to relate to other bodies. So he uh, had the basic spiritual and intellectual capacity. When we say intellectual capacity, a lot of people think that children are born uh, as a blank slate, and they start getting everything written on them through their environment, so therefore they're a product of their environment. There is a measure of truth to that, but... Since they're already born twisted with the iniquity of their father, um, that is not a blank slate. It is a crooked uh, stick, if you will. And now we're going to mess it up even more through some of the things that their environment may do. Or we may help straighten it a little bit because of the environment that they grow up in. So uh, he has the intellectual capacity uh, Adam named all of the animals. Now, how many animals were there? You know, I don't think anybody knows. 
But what do we know uh, that, first of all, he was able to see that there was male and female. And, oh, that one's got a horn, so that's a unicorn. That one's got two horns, so that's a, a rhinoceros. Uh, the word unicorn, until about 200 years ago, uh, was considered to be the one-horned rhinoceros. Um, in fact, the, I think it's the Greek word is unicornus, uh, and that's why it's pronounced the way it is in English. But if you looked up unicorn in the Bible, uh, 1800s, Daniel Webster, it was a one-horned rhinoceros, where, and it gave you the Greek word for the two-horned rhinoceros, but it wasn't unicorn at that point because uni is only one. <laughs> but uh, he was able to name all the animals. And again, how many? Does it matter? He had the intellectual capacity to say, this is an elephant, that's a camel, that's a rhinoceros, that's a whatever, okay? All right, so not only that, uh, number three, he had work. He was to tend the garden and have dominion. Now, pastor went through this a couple years ago where he presented the purpose that God had given man as, okay, here's the garden. I want you to tend it, keep it, uh, under control. It doesn't need to get overgrown. Not only that, but as your kids grow up, I want you to expand. See, now you're going to fill the earth and tend the garden so that the whole world will ultimately become like the garden that I've made for you. Not just here and let all that go to hell, but I want you to spread this thing out. That's the idea. And so he has purpose, and he has all that's necessary for it to be done. He has dominion over the animals, over the things that uh, he's in charge of. He does not have dominion over other men, as Pastor has also pointed out. Okay, so, and then number uh, four, he had company. He had fellowship with God. Now, I was explaining to a few people that... Um, we find out in chapter 3 that God comes and walks with them in the garden in the cool of the afternoon. Some people would like to think that Adam and Eve were in the garden for a period of time. I'm of the opinion that it may have been less than a week. It may have been more than a week, but I don't think it was a long time. And the reason is, is if you're walking around the garden with God every afternoon and asking whatever questions and seeing the wisdom of God expressed and explained before you, and seeing how much he cares for you, and does everything for you, and all that kind of stuff, how long does it take before, you know, I really trust that guy, and nothing's going to affect this? It's going to take a little while, but it's finally going to come to happen. I think the reason why they were so easily deceived is because they didn't know God very well at that point. So I think it was relatively soon after creation uh, that they are tempted. But they did have, uh, Adam did have company. He had fellowship with God. Let her see. God said about all of his creation, oh, that's good. Oh, man, that's good. Oh, man, that is good. At the end of seven days, he said, man, everything is very good. But in day six, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. See, there's still a need that I have to take care of. Okay? That brings us to letter D. What is not good? 
He had the love of God and he had the sense of purpose. A lot of people would say, well, that's all you need. But he didn't have a helper corresponding to him. Uh, the word helper means assistant, aid, helper. Uh, it is used in the scripture as someone who is equal, as someone who is inferior, and as someone who is superior. So the concept of a helper has nothing to do with somehow women are less than men. Okay? It has everything to do with someone who is going to assist in what you're given to do. And the word for uh, compatible, um, corresponding to, means like or opposite to him. Complementary fills in the parts that are lacking and will assist to be a companion, a companion or a partner to him. Uh, you know, if you take your uh, left hand and you put your right hand here and you interweave these fingers like this and close them real tight and then start pouring water in them, do you realize you can actually hold water in your hand? Because this hand is corresponding or compatible with this one where it actually develops a little cup. Isn't that something? Okay. If you look at your electrical wiring, uh, you've got a plug on the, uh, uh, the utility, the, the thing that you're going to use, and you put it in the plug on, in the wall, the socket. You got two little doodads here, maybe three, and they go in the two or the three little holes that are in the socket, and then boom, your light works. That's the idea of being corresponding or compatible with. Um, take a, a, an electric heater, because my office is a little cold, so we have those electric heaters there. Take that electric heater, go down to Brazil. Why would you want to take an electric heater down to Brazil? For the point of my illustration, and you go to plug it in, and guess what? There's three holes there. Round, round, and round. Yeah, but mine's flat, flat, and round. Exactly. Their electrical is wired up in such a way that it is not compatible with one of our utilities that we would use up here. You have to have an adapter. Not only that, in many cases, they have 220 wiring and our stuff is all 110. So go ahead and plug it in and see what happens. Dave, what happens? <laughs> It'll burn up because it's too much electricity. It is not compatible too, okay? That, that's the concept here. So the woman is uh, to be a helper that is corresponding or com complementary to. And now notice, they could not be found among the animals. This helper that was compatible to him could not be found among the animals. Only Eve could share humanity, bearing the image of God with him and re reproduce with him. Uh, I, I think if you, if you think about that a little bit, I know people want to save the whales. Uh, when we were down in the Key West uh, last year, June, uh, last last year, June 22, um, we went to one of those turtle museums and they talked about sea turtles and you touch a sea turtle and you can get a $500 fine. And some of these sea turtles, you know, they're cute little buggers. And then they got cute little buggers. They're like six foot tall and, well, not tall, but long. And um, what some of our garbage does to them and stuff like that, you know. So save the sea turtles. Save the whales. Baby in a mother's womb. Ah, no big deal. 
Bacteria on Mars? Oh. Baby in a mother's womb? Eh. Whole point being is when we look at uh, life from God's perspective, human is so much more important than animal, not that you shouldn't conserve or preserve the animal, but because we are made in the image of God. That is different. People say, well, dogs go to heaven. I don't know. What I do know is that Solomon said that when an animal dies, his soul goes down in the earth, and when a man dies, his soul goes up to heaven. Oh, okay. That would seem to indicate the answer might be no. But there's a bunch of angels running around in chariots with horses, so I don't know. That's okay. But again, the whole point is, from God's perspective, humans made in the image of God are much more important. So Adam needed another human, both for the fellowship as well as the reproduction. Okay, letter E. Since God created her to be a helper corresponding to him, she would find fullest joy embracing that for which God created her. By the way, that is true of anybody But because uh, in this day and age, feminism has worked itself into the church, here's two competing ideas uh, that you may have to deal with in your own thinking or in the thinking of someone you love. We have a a complementary view whereby the woman is given to man to aid, assist him, And she is complimentary to him. She brings things to the table that he doesn't have, that he needs to be the kind of person that God wants him to be. That's complimentary. And then we have the egalitarian view, whereby women and men are equal. Now, from what Scripture teaches, when it comes to salvation, women and men are equal. Both of them can be saved. Now, we do know that women are going to get to heaven 30 minutes after men. Yes, that's a joke for anybody that's watching on TV there. It says there's going to be silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. But, of course, I know a bunch of men, including myself, that do a lot of talking, so we'll move past that one. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, when it comes to salvation, men and women are equal. When it comes to the fact that they are partners in this marriage, They have equal standing, but when it comes to their position or their role before God, a woman was given to a man, and she has the job of submitting to her husband. Just like the husband has a job of submitting to his wife in the sense of loving her like Christ loved the church. Now, the reason why I say that is we recently watched a Vody Bachman video where he said, mutual submission is false doctrine. And of course, from my perspective, she's submitting to the headship of her husband. Why? Because God said so, not because he's such a good head. And he is loving her like Christ loved the church. Why? Because she's lovable. No, because God said so. Okay. That would be what I'd be considering mutual submission. The egalitarian view, mutual submission means we are both equal. There is nobody being the head of nobody else. If you carefully look at that view, 
What women are doing is living according to the fall of man, the curse that was put on the woman. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And they're saying, oh, no, he won't. They're taking the first line and telling God to take the second line. And Okay? That's the egalitarian view. Now, someone might come along and describe it a little bit differently, but please understand, when we look at Scripture, she is given to the man as a complement to him, a helper that is corresponding to him. Now, does that mean that life has to be all about him? No. But when you see how God intends for them to work together, she's going to find the most happiness fulfilling her role, he's going to find the most happiness fulfilling his role. And the way we got it today, some of it's backwards. And if you find yourself in that position, you might rethink that for a little bit. Notice letter F. Proverbs will speak of two types of wives in Proverbs 14.1. Wow. It's not that I don't mind reading this. But I want you to catch that from the egalitarian view, this verse is a real problem. Notice what it says. It says, a wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. Now, very often, it's not the idea of actually tearing the house apart with her hands as much as through the things that she does, she actually tears it apart. I've told you about some of the videos that I've seen where men are leaving the United States of America, going over to the Philippines and and various other countries, and finding wives, marrying them, bringing them back here, because those women would like to be wives. They don't want to be CEOs of companies. They don't want to be CEOs of their own home. Now, Does the woman have a realm whereby she operates? The Scripture says yes. We'll talk about that later. But um, a lot of the women today, I'm not going to be, you know, some housewife. Kind of like, I'm not asking to be the housewife, but who's going to be responsible to God for your family? Oh, well, then you're going to have problems. You're going to end up tearing your house down. Okay, uh, phase two, number three. (coughs) Excuse me. Genesis 2, 21 to 25. Uh, Let me read it again here for you. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he fell asleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the two were naked, and uh, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So phase two, man's recognition of Eve's purpose. In verse 23, he says, uh, Adam said, uh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So what's her purpose? Uh, We see that she's part of him. Okay, notice he's not part of her. She's part of him. Okay, 
Um, so uh, recognize number one, claiming at her as his own. He named her. This is woman or Eve, I, I think it says here. Let me see. Uh, the rib which the Lord had taken out of me, a woman, and brought her to the man. Adam said, now this is bone of my bone. She shall be called woman. Okay. Now that actually works with man because in the Hebrew you have ish for man and isha for woman. Why they ever translated uh, her name as Eve, uh, you'd have thought it had been Adama from Battlestar Galactica or something like that, but uh, uh, it's Eve. I, I don't know. But uh, we'll, we'll see as we go along. So not only does he claim her as his own, uh, marriage is established. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How many of you like uh, Hallmark videos? Hallmark movies. They're, they're predictable. They're the same theme every single... You know, they might have a little bit of a twist here and there, but the girl and the guy, they get to know each other, and there was some reason why they should have never, ever met, but they did, and, and uh, they get to know each other. They start liking each other, and then some old boyfriend, old girlfriend comes into the picture. There's some kind of a letdown, and before they know it, no, you're really the one, and they run back to him, and it, it's great, Right? Yeah, always, exactly, every single time. <laughs> oh, man. And it doesn't matter if it's a movie made in 2012 or 2022. It's basically the same thing. My, my whole point is when you look at this concept of marriage being established, it's a proclamation, bing, bang, bong, it's done. Okay? Um, Notice they enjoyed mutual vulnerability working and serving God. They're both naked, the man and his wife. They're not ashamed. Now, once sin enters into the world, we know later on they recognize that they're naked and they try and cover up their nakedness. And all of a sudden, nakedness has this bad connotation. What he's trying to say here is they have this mutual, intimate vulnerability. They're working in the garden together. They're helping each other out. That, that's basically what he's saying, okay? So that brings us down to letter B, God's design. According to his eternal purpose, in Ephesians 1.11 and 3.11, it says, in him, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 3.11 says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whole point being is God has this eternal purpose that was determined before the creation of the world, and he is working it out, and it is going to be accomplished. Okay? So when we think of marriage and all that, it is God's design. It's according to his eternal purpose. It has a, a, a purpose, a place, etc. So first of all, notice the end. Uh, Genesis 126, and then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle of uh, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So the end of God's design is that man would have dominion. Like I said, they start in the garden. They have kids. Their kids get the next garden over. They have, those kids have kids. And the next garden over. And before you know it, the whole world has, has been placed in dominion under man's hands. That was the idea there. Notice uh, letter B. Man created, uh, he is created distinct from animals. He's in the image of God. And he's given a charge. Now, do animals serve a purpose? Sure they do. Okay? In the garden, there's no eating meat. That doesn't happen until chapter 9 after the flood. So the purpose of animals was not food. (laughs) Okay? I'm sure when you think about how cows work, they chew the grass, they chew the cud, they chew the cud, they chew the cud, and before you know it, they add to the soil some uh, remains. That soil helps. I mean, what they add to the soil helps that soil so that it can continue to produce and have the life that God designed for it to have. Um, Goats. uh, I like watching these videos. Uh, Jeff uh, probably has seen some of these too where they uh, have a property that's been abandoned and it's just overgrown. And someone hires a guy to bring in about 30 goats and within a few days... It is down to the ground level. They, they strip everything, eat everything. It's great. Even the stuff that cows won't eat, they eat it all. So obviously their digestive system might be a little bit different than a cow's because it can handle all that stuff. So they serve a purpose. What about mosquitoes? You've got to understand, mosquitoes probably didn't suck blood until after the fall. But they served some purpose before the fall of which I'm not informed. And it wasn't food for the birds, I don't imagine, because things didn't eat meat back then. So, I don't know. But uh, man has dominion over it all because he is different than all of the other animals. Uh, All too many movies in this day and age, and for 30 years or more, has determined that man is nothing more than an animal. Yes, we may be mammals, warm-blooded creatures, but we are still made in the image of God and different from animals. Letter C, marriage does not interrupt or become an obstacle to the God-given task of having dominion and uh, filling the earth. Okay? Uh, A lot of people might think that marriage interrupts my plans to be an NBA player. My marriage never had to worry about that. I can't jump six inches off the ground. Uh, It might interrupt uh, me becoming a CEO. Okay? But it didn't interrupt God's charge for you to have dominion. That's the whole purpose here. Okay, so that's the ends. What about the means? Well, Genesis 1.28, creating a staff to get the work done that God has called you to do. It says in verse uh, uh, 28, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, uh, I, I joke about Adam seeing Eve and saying, Whoa, man! The reality is, is when you look at the Hebrew word here where it says, uh, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful. The way the Hebrew word is written, you've got your root words, normally three letters, and then you can have prefixes and you can have suffixes. And for your purpose, you can have prefixes and suffixes. 
because you read this way, not that way. <laughs> okay? And the way this word is written, when he said, be fruitful, it's like he flipped the switch. And at that point, Adam is not looking at another created thing and saying, kill. He's looking at another created uh, being, a woman, and saying, whoa, man. You know, that, that, that's what happened here, okay? Uh, so when he, when he says, be fruitful, he enabled everything so that they would be fruitful and multiply. So uh, that's the means. Create a staff. Look, we're not just talking about this garden. We're talking about filling the earth with a garden like this. Having dominion over the whole thing, not just this portion. Okay? So bringing us back here to the means, creating a staff. Uh, children were not designed to be cute and cuddly little buggerheads. Okay? That's not what they were designed for. They were designed to be the next portion of the uh, garden, the next portion of the garden, the next portion of the garden. The Amish did get a few things right when it came to that kind of stuff. Children were designed to continue the charge. Filling and subduing were complementary. So the more kids you had, the more you were able to have dominion over, the more you were able to tend the garden that God had given them to do. Now, the duration of marriage, that's found in verse uh, 24 and Matthew 19, 6 again. Going back to our two verses, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And 19, 6 says, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the duration, God's intention, permanency within this life. Okay? Now, again, knowing how things work, someone may be listening, that it hasn't worked out that way. As I'm talking about this, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus, especially when it takes two to tango, and one of them can really mess up that dance. Now, I do think that there's no such thing as an innocent party under normal circumstances. Two people make mistakes. One of them usually makes a bigger mistake, maybe, but uh, uh, it doesn't matter. We're just talking about facts here, okay? Matthew 22, 29 to 30. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, uh, mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, that was a response to the Pharisees, Sadducees that come along and say, Sadducees, they didn't believe in the supernatural. So they believed that, uh, okay, God said this uh, man had uh, six brothers, woman married one of them, he died, no kids, got to marry the next one, he died, no kids, got to marry the next one. She goes through all seven boys. Uh, you know, somewhere in a rush, I'd sit there and said, yeah, I'm not sure I'm letting you marry the next one, you know, as a father. But that's what was supposed to happen. And then finally the woman dies. There are no kids. Now, whose wife is she going to be when she gets to heaven? That they didn't believe in. And that's, this is Jesus' response. You, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, marriage is for this world. It's not for the next one. Okay? Uh, we will be like the angels in the sense that angels aren't married. Okay, uh, the duration, God's intention, permanency, uh, letter B, the first error. 
Uh, and then there's a second error, letter, letter C. W- when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage, uh, boy, you got to look at the whole of the Scripture. I had one missionary tell me that m- divorce is never allowed for because of Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. It's only through death can a marriage end. Therefore, if someone gets divorced and gets remarried, they're in adultery no matter what. It's kind of like if I was only looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, I could come to that conclusion. The problem is, is my Bible has a lot more to say about this subject than just that passage. Okay? So the first error, uh, you may never and can never uh, get divorced. That's the first error. The marriage can never and may never be dissolved. Number one, like saying murder should never happen, so therefore there's no need of police. Uh, Police exist because of sinners. They don't always follow the rules. So (laughs) this whole push a couple of years ago to defund the police, we want to go to utopia. Let's defund the police. What happened? Crime rate went up. And now it's kind of like, well, we're going to send out social workers. You, you like that idea, John? <laughs> Why? Because they'll, they'll get shot. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, people are not interested when they're in the midst of crime in talking to someone and saying, you know what, you're right. I just guess I won't do this anymore. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, neither does marriage stop getting divorce issues because sinners are sinner. Sins exist, and therefore divorce is one of the options that's been laid out there. But notice, number two, the intent is permanence, but sin changes the equation. And if that happens, the Bible gives grounds for divinely permitted dissolution of marriage. Let me read a couple passages for you. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So what's going to happen? There's been a divorce. There's been a a remarriage. Okay? Um when she departs from his house, goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her in as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be with his wife after, uh, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination. Now, what, what's God's problem? Her, her second husband left her or died, and therefore she goes back to the first one. The first one said, until death do us part, and they broke that. Now, to throw another marriage in there and then come back to the first one, kind of like, you guys can't get your story straight. Don't even go there. That's the idea of that. Okay? How about Matthew 5, 31, 32? Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let her give uh, her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality 
causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, in this particular case, look at the first century. What jobs were women allowed to do? I mean, they worked in the, in the uh, uh, factory where they made bombs, right? No. Women lived at home, worked out of the household in the sense of taking care of the house. They might have done some other things, according to Proverbs 31, but it was all operated out of her house. She didn't work for another guy. She may have been self-employed, that kind of a thing. But for the most part, she was a housewife, uh, a mother, homemaker, that kind of thing. Now, divorce her when she has absolutely no way of providing for herself. What's she got to do? Well, she either has to get married to someone else or she has to become a prostitute. Those are only two options. Well, who wants to marry her? Some other guy already dumped her. Some might, but they're left with very little options. You've put her in a position where she has to commit adultery because unless she committed adultery, and that's why the divorce came about, that seems to be the only reason, and when we say adultery, We'll see that expanded a little bit as we go along. But that seems to be the only reason. She broke the vow of marriage, uh, faithful unto you, until death do us part. She broke it, or he broke it through adultery. Because women like to say it's the man who committed adultery. In today's day and age, women are instigating 80% of divorces. And as far as adultery goes, they're committing just as much adultery as men are. It's, it's equal. In the old days, it used to be that men did it more often. No, now it's, it's equal in, in the world. Hopefully in the church, it's not existent, but that'd be nice. <laughs> um, so uh, when we, we talk about it, it's you're forcing this person to commit adultery because somehow she's got to be provided for. Matthew 19.9, And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Again, except for sexual immorality. If she burnt the toast and I'm sick and tired of it, getting rid of her. And that's what some of these guys were doing. Well, if you do that and then you go marry some other cute little thing, you're going to be committing adultery. And anybody that marries your wife, they'll be committing adultery because until death do you part is the answer. Okay? And then Matthew, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 13 through 15. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So a couple things here. Two people get married, and then all of a sudden one of them gets saved. The unsaved spouse decides to stay with the saved spouse. Great. Uh, in so doing, God now has an inroad to that unsaved spouse life, as well as the kid's life. Okay? Now, it's a, a difficult road to go on. We've got a couple ladies in the church. They have unsaved husbands. And what's the natural tendency, natural bent of the children? To go along with the unsaved husband 
It's it's a difficult road to, uh, but God says, hey, if he's willing to stay with you, stay with him. Okay? You don't know how God's going to use the saved spouse in the unsaved spouse's life. Now, where the difficulty comes in is when the saved spouse has expectations of God or of her husband that are unbiblical. When I say unbiblical, she wants this unsaved man to live like a saved person. Yeah, um, at that point, she's probably not being a light in his world. She's being a problem, (laughs) okay? Again, a wise woman builds her house up. A foolish woman can tear it down. So uh, you got to be careful there. Not only that, but it goes on to say, if he decides he doesn't want to stay around, she is free. What does free mean? She is not obligated to the uh, covenant of marriage any further. She is now free to remarry. We're going to see later on, only in the Lord. Now she's got to marry a saved guy. Okay? But uh, divorce is allowed under those circumstances. Now, people want to run in and uh, throw in, well, uh, we would consider this the concept of abandonment if the husband leaves he abandoned her. She'd be free to remarry. Uh, people want to come in and throw in domestic abuse and that kind of stuff. I in no way want to make a woman stay with a man who is physically harming her. Okay? Does that mean there has to be a divorce? No. Does that mean she has to stay with him? No. I don't believe God is expecting that of a person, and this would be part of the reason why I believe that. Uh, but the reality is, is the Bible doesn't talk a lot about that stuff, so we have to use principles from the Word of God to develop a, a, that understanding that, no, she's not, because if he's supposed to love her like Christ loved the church, he might be unsaved. What is a husband's duty to his wife? Not to beat her up and you know, kick her around. Uh, He is to care for her. Even in the unsaved world, that is understood. So um, I don't know that she has to stay with him, but it doesn't mean she has to divorce him. And of course, if she doesn't stay with him, chances are he's going to instigate that divorce anyway. But uh, the Bible does give allowance under specific circumstances where uh, a marriage can be dissolved. Let her see the second error. Because it can be dissolved, it can be dissolved for any reason. Now, this is exactly what the uh, Sadducees did with Jesus. You know, she burnt the toast one too many times. Well, maybe you need to get a new toaster. I I don't know. Uh, (laughs) So um, notice, number one, though God does allow some grounds for dissolution, they are specific and restricted. Divorce is always the least worst option. Notice in uh, Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce. But you know what he hates even more than divorce? All of the sin and treachery that lead up to divorce. So uh, there is a place for it, but it's limited and uh, specific reasons. That brings us to the foundational pledge, Genesis 2.24, which we've already read two times, and uh, the Lord God caused a deep sleep. No, that's 21. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, 
We see, first of all, the concept of covenant. Uh, Covenants are not equal to contracts, deals, or treaties, okay? Uh, A covenant is basically a regulated relationship. We would say, well, that sounds like a contract, a deal, or a treaty. But this covenant actually binds these people together. When it says a man should leave his mother and father and cleave unto his wife, the word cleave there is the idea of if you've ever been to a butcher shop and they have a real sharp knife and they take that knife and they cut right down there on that uh, chuck steak or something like that. When they pull the knife out of there, that meat will actually stick together because it's such a clean cut. And when you open it up, it's kind of like, wow, that's smooth as all get out. And it'll stay together. Okay? So when you cut a covenant, these two people are no longer two, but they are one. It is kind of like taking two pieces of tissue paper, sprinkling glue all over them, and then sticking them together, and then letting the glue dry. Now, take them apart. You can't. It will shred the tissue paper. This is why divorce hurts so much. They're no longer two. Yes, we have Courtney and Adam over here. They are two individual people, but they are one flesh. The other illustration that we have of this in Scripture is the Lord your God is one God, but three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. They're a unit. My wife and I have been married for 38, going on 39 years. We're a unit. I mean, it's gotten to the point where when we were younger, it's kind of like, boy, I'd like to get rid of that one. Uh, And now it's kind of like, man, if that one leaves, I'm going with them. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, Why? Because we're stuck. We're bound together. Uh, I, I, I see these videos of soldiers coming home after they've been gone for a year and someone sees them and they just start bawling. And of course, they got to give them a hug and I'm sitting there going, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and then, of course, I see wives who lose their husbands. They've been married for so many years. And people sit there and say, you know, you shouldn't mourn for two or three years after your husband, you know, get on with life. Kind of like, do you not understand? They are now half a person. They're missing half of themselves because their life has been bound together with that person for that many years, that kind of thing. So it includes the binding of two people. uh, And uh, notice it defines the relationship and it fills in the participants' responsibilities to each other. So the covenant... uh, says this is what the marriage is all about and here's what this one's supposed to do, here's what that one's supposed to do, that kind of thing. There are two types of covenants in the Scripture and we're coming up to the end of our time, but I'm going to try and run through this as quickly as possible. If you've got any questions, uh, talk to me afterwards. First of all, we have bilateral covenants. This is the idea of a two-sided conditional covenant. You do line A and I'll do line B. The, uh, the law, if you will, or the Sinai covenant, Exodus 19, is going to be that. You follow my commands, and I'm going to give you rain and good harvest, and your cattle are going to be blessed, and your family is going to be blessed. But if you don't, 
I'm going to kick your right out of the land. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, so it's a conditional two-sided covenant. Then you have unilateral covenants. This is an unconditional. There are no ifs. If you look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, he says, God says, go to a land that I'll show you, and this is what I'm going to do. What if Abraham had never gone? God's not obligated to do anything at that point. Okay? When we come to uh, Genesis 15, verses 9 through 21, uh, Abraham is told to cut up some animals and put them in a row. And then God tells Abraham, this is what's going to happen to your, uh, your kids, the, next, the following generations. They're going to be slaves in another land, and ultimately I'm going to bring them out, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to bring them in the land, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. And then Abraham falls asleep, and God, a pillar of smoke and a pillar of, fly, of, of fire, walked down between those cut-up animals. The idea of the cut-up animals was, if you don't keep this commandment, this is what's going to happen to you or this covenant. So God is the only one that walks down between those cut-up animals. He's the only one that has responsibility for doing everything that he said he was going to do. Abraham, what did he have to do? Nothing. He just continued to live and walk with God. But that wasn't a condition. It was what was going to happen. Okay? So that's a unilateral covenant. One party pledges to do for the other and the subject. When we get into the marital covenant, we find out that this is a bilateral conditional covenant. Specific circumstances allow for abrogation. I've already read all of those verses. But it suggests the nature of marriage is to leave and cleave. And again, when you use that cleaver, that's the idea of cutting the covenant. Now they're stuck together. Yeah, they're, they're two, but it's so clean they're stuck together. Okay, um, number four, covenantal language of marriage is found in Proverbs chapter two and verse seventeen. Let me read that for you. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God? And then Matthew two fourteen. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the scripture teaches that marriage is a covenant. And notice number five, it is exclusive commitment through the sexual union. The two shall become one flesh. Now, that one flesh is so much more than just the physical union, but the physical union is actually used by God through the uh, release of hormones and things like that to bind these two people together. And that's why when young people are becoming a little bit more mature, they need to understand that the concept of premarital sex, so though the world says, hey, it's great stuff, it's okay. It's kind of like, no, it is designed for that committed relationship. When you do it outside of the committed relationship, all it does is bring pain, fighting, insecurity. Uh, when I'm doing premarital counseling, I don't know how many times I've told young couples that have already been involved, look, stop. 
I can't do anything about yesterday. You can't do anything about yesterday. You can confess it for what it is. You can ask God for the cleansing that uh, comes as you walk with him. Stop. Why? Because if you're willing to break the rules before marriage, guess what she's going to think after marriage? You're willing to break the rules. And there's going to be insecurity, and then there's going to be fighting. And it's amazing how many times that's exactly what happens among Christian young people. Again, we understand the world, you know, but we want to be careful. So uh, the practical impact, number five, uh, top of the next page. Understand the above and, uh, or don't make sense of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce. You got to understand it is a covenant. You take that covenant concept out of it, make it into a contract. You're really not going to understand anything else the Bible says about marriage or divorce. I think of two stars that have never been married. They have kids together. They've been with each other. They're in a committed relationship. From God's perspective, they might actually be married. But, you know, we want to go through the ceremony. Uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. Uh, they seem to be an example for all kinds of young kids that are getting married out in Hollywood and can't last 55 hours. I mean, um, a couple of years. <laughs> yes, one of them did it for 55 hours. Um, but uh, they're in a committed relationship. Now, I think there were other relationships before that had other kids, and now it's a conglomerate type thing, if I understand everything correctly. But they've never been married. Why not? Ah, it's just a piece of paper. It's just a contract. No. It's not. There's more to it than that. And I bet they would probably admit that nowadays, especially when one of them might leave. Okay, letter C, truth about vows. Uh, when we talk about vows, and a covenant is basically a vow, vows, are made, uh, vows that are made are required complete follow-through. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself to, by summer arrangement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's what God says about vows. Number two, vows made require prompt follow-through or you incur sin. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, uh, it shall not be a sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you, uh, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God that you have promised with your mouth. Okay, so if you make that vow, you are required to do it and as soon as uh, possible. Number three, vows made require follow-through even if it costs you. Remember years ago, a missionary was getting ready to go to the mission field. He had his support, but he needed his outgoing money. When he got down there, he'd have to buy a vehicle, rent a house, needed all that kind of money. And uh, so I... Uh, I made a commitment to the Lord. Okay, here's my normal salary. I was working at Sears as a salesman at the time. Here's how much I know I need for uh, taking care of business. Anything I make over that, I will donate to this cause. That week, I had a fantastic week. And a sick kid that had to go to the emergency room. That was not a normal budgetary cost. 
I had to trust the Lord to take care of that bill because I had already committed the money that could have paid that bill to something else. That's the idea here. Notice uh, Psalm 15, 1 to 2. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may uh, dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Who, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Oh. Sometimes getting married, you're making a covenant, and you don't know what you're getting until you got it. Tough. Work it out. Trust God. Pray a lot. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. And then, of course, number four, after making a vow uh, is not the time to think about its wisdom. Proverbs 20, verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. Uh, one guy in the Bible said, Lord, you give me this great victory. Whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to offer to you as a burnt offering. He gets home, and first thing comes out of the door is his daughter. Now, we can argue about whether or not he actually offered her as a, a burnt sacrifice, which God said, don't do, or how that might have been worked out. But there was an understanding that she was not free to just go and live her life, okay? Uh, because... He made a foolish vow and then had to live with it afterwards. Letter D, marriage by nature is a vow. We've already looked at Malachi 2.14, Proverbs 2.17, and Genesis 2.24. So, value for the people that are unmarried. Why, why do they need to listen to some of this stuff? Letter A, the benefit of the unmarried understanding these truths, number one, the concern over the divorce rate scares some people, and they say, well, if that's the case, why bother getting married? And then, of course, number two, having the wrong idea of what marriage is really like. I remember years ago, a young lady was dating one of my sons, and she had the uh, love comes softly syndrome. Uh, marriage was going to be like my knight arriving on the white horse and it was just going to be wonderful and <sighs> they broke up a couple months later. <laughs> um, but but uh, a lot of girls and some guys, I imagine, uh, they get this fantasy idea of what marriage is supposed to be like. And those of you that have been married, has it been good? Yeah. Has it been difficult? Oh, yeah. Because the other one's always a sinner. Just saying. <laughs> I like to blame my wife for being the problem, but she could easily say the same thing about me. Okay. So, letter B. Who do I marry? The Christian norm. This is what a lot of people believe. There is one special person out there that God has for you. You just got to find that one special person. There's only 8 billion people in the world. How do I find that one special person? <sighs> God's word gives us principles to find someone special. And notice what it says. Make it work for God's glory. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, She is free to marry whom she wishes. In other words, there's not one special person out there. And the only way it's going to work right is if you find that one, it's... We have principles that, delineate, that uh, help us understand, here's the kind of person I can marry. 
Now, how many people fit that? Anyone who fits that, anyone who fits that, I can marry. So if you're a guy, you're looking for a wife. Can we say you need to start with women? Okay? Because that's what God said, male and female, right? Uh, second of all, should she be born again? If you are, she sure better be. Should she be growing spiritually? And the reason why I throw that in there is so many people who claim to be saved, when you look at their life, oh, so they ought to really be born again, you know, really be walking with the Lord, making some effort, okay? Um, can your wife be a banana? No. See, when, when we take all of the principles that God's Word gives us, we can come up with any number of possible people that can be our spouse, and it doesn't matter which one you pick, whichever one you pick, there's going to be some issues. Why? Because the other one's a sinner and you're a sinner. And by God's grace, you can make it work for His glory, that kind of thing. But notice, only in the Lord, Proverbs teaches that a wise wife or a man, what they, what they actually look like, and so learning everyone, everything that one can learn so that they can choose wisely is really what it's all about. And then apply God's standards of wisdom in that search. Now, I've really simplified that, but that really is what the Bible teaches as far as finding someone to marry um, if they meet the scriptural principles. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I, got, uh, when I, got, uh, when I met Lynn, I had a list of things that I was looking for in a wife. And I'm a little partial to blondish type girls. Blue eyes, I like that. Short, yeah, I don't want her being taller than me. And the women that want a tall guy, I don't have a problem with that. But maybe you shouldn't give up on the guy that's 5'9", five, 5'10", five, you know, I'm just saying. Um, a particular physical shape, yeah, I, like, I, I had that on my list too. And then as far as her abilities, I had some of those things on my list. Now, which ones were necessary? She had to be a girl. She had to be saved. Uh, she had to be one that was seeking God's face. I was looking to go into the mission field. I was kind of hoping she'd go with me, you know. There was a time where I was wondering. <laughs> so just saying. Um, look, uh, we have a good foundation for what marriage is supposed to be. Next week, we're going to talk about the husband. Now, it would be a whole lot easier to talk about the woman first because, man, do I have lots of information. No, uh, the reality is, is uh, we're going to talk about both of them. And uh, within both of them, Lord willing, we're going to see wisdom, foolishness. Wisdom, foolishness. Which one should you copy? Which one should you be like? So... Let's close in prayer and we'll let you go. Father, we thank you again for your love, for your care, for your word. As you have given us how it all started, uh, what it was designed to do, we do pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we work those things out. We recognize that uh, the idea of having 900 and some odd children so we can have a bigger garden all over the place, that might be a little unrealistic in this day and age. But the idea of raising our children so that they might continue uh, the charge of having dominion and uh, tending that which you give them to tend, that's still valid. 
Uh, we do ask that you would give us wisdom in how we uh, teach our children and how we live it out before them for your honor and glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Lord willing, see you Wednesday night.